There is a chronic, painful, and costly gap in business communication today. Most leaders believe they have very good products and services, yet most also believe they're anything but good with their messaging. Our guest says the problem usually isn't in the tactics and details of delivering a message, but rather that most presentations don't match the ways our brains want to consume information. And he's ready to help you avoid that mistake. It's Tim Pollard on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow. By talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Here each week, we discuss the three foundational components for growing your business through messaging. There's the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. There's the ways to build a robust network of messengers who will help you share the message. And finally, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into a durable competitive advantage. Our firm belief is that it's much easier to grow your business when you're a message manager. Our guest today knows a lot about that. Tim Pollard had a long career in sales and marketing for companies such as Unilever, Barclays Bank, and the Corporate Executive Board. Now he is the founder and CEO of Oratium. I may have said that wrong, Tim. Oratium? Oratium? Oratium is fine. It's the same root as uh, orator and oratory. Which uh, I am trying to orate right now and doing a horrible <laughs> job of it. It is a wonderful consulting and training company that works with clients for executive sales and donor messaging. Tim is also a big-time speaker, a regular columnist for Forbes and Entrepreneur, and the author of The Compelling Communicator, Mastering the Art and Science of Exceptional Presentation Design. And it's an excellent read. Tim and his wife, Ruth, now live in Montana. But as you just heard a little bit there in Tim's accent, he did not begin in Montana. Tim reports that their four kids don't get any less expensive after they graduate from college. The toys just get more expensive. He's passionate about his family, his fly fishing, and his church. He is with us today from his Western Outpost in Montana. Tim, welcome to the Big Messaging Show. Jim, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. And let's go right into, Tim, a couple of, I would say the elephants in the room, but given where you are, we might make them elk or bison. But basically, the, <laughs> yeah. the big gaps, the big problems when we think about business messaging and presentations, you note in your book that most presentations, even the ones that we would say were delivered with great skill, still fail to produce much lasting impact. And we've also seen research showing that when companies compare how good they believe their solutions are versus how good they believe the messaging for those solutions is, there's a huge and, and tremendous gap. So what in the world do you see going on? Uh, it's a very interesting question. If you talk to companies of all stripes and types and you ask them how good are the core solutions they've developed for their marketplace, if you give them a 1 to 10 scale, you can actually measure this empirically and you get back the number of 8.1 out of 10. So companies self-assess that the solutions they've made are really pretty good. And I think they're right. I mean, some of the finest minds in the world are out there building technology solutions for their customers. But when you ask those same companies how well do you tell the story of that solution? I mean, it's harder to get in front of a customer. When you do, you don't get as much time and they're more distracted. So you've got this very tough environment in which to tell the story. They 
uniformly, universally report that they just do not do a very good job. And on that same one to 10 scale, you get a number of 3.9. So here you have these companies, you know, either in the high tech or the engineering or the technical or the biotech or the medical devices areas, great products, the finest minds have designed them. They do solve real customer problems, but we just do not seem to be able to tell the story very well. And as you noted earlier, the problem is messaging is is just dense, confusing, hard to follow, hard to understand, and not in the least bit sticky. If you actually look at most commercial messaging, there are three hallmarks that are really toxic. There are three toxic hallmarks, and almost all companies, their messaging actually displays all three hallmarks. One is far too much information. We have an absurd idea of how much a human brain can take in, so we just pack as much as we possibly can in. And then we wonder why people just glaze over. The second toxic hallmark is messaging is so confusing. It's so unclear what the true value proposition is. We fill our stuff with technical material. We don't give it a logical narrative structure or flow. So people just don't understand really what we're saying to them. And that's incredibly common. And then the third hallmark is we are so sender oriented. We love to talk about ourselves. We love to talk about, hey, this is our history and how we got started and how many awards our product has won. And we tend to come at the construction of the argument from the standpoint of what's interesting to us and what we're most wanting to talk about, what we're most proud of. That is the least bit interesting to a customer. So when you barrage a customer with 120 dense PowerPoint slides that are technical, illogically structured and confusing, and mostly about yourself, then it's really not surprising that you're lucky even sometimes to get through the meeting. It's really not surprising that nothing sticks and that so many times sales we could and should have won, deals we could and should have won, we don't win because we were just let down so badly by our messaging. So this is a fairly interesting and and serious problem that B2B companies experience. I've done um, a lot of work with some B2B companies that have these complex and really very good solutions. And as you were talking about that barrage of information and how things are too complex, there have been times where we'll set it up in a workshop and talk about the typical company capabilities deck or the, the corporate PowerPoint and joke about how, how often you know it's, it's 75 slides and, and it goes from our mission and vision statement into our locations and our timeline and our founding story and our products and our revenue growth and more on and on about us. And Tim, it never fails. Someone will start smiling, nodding, laughing, and saying something like, oh, you must have seen our deck. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. so this is a yeah. common thing. And I, I guess, as you said in the book, people, that we do what makes sense to us. And I think for a lot of people who are trying to put together a compelling message, they're stuck. And what makes sense to them is some of the technical language, the industry lingo. You know, people are more confident talking about the things that they know rather than things that they may be less sure about in the customer's world. I guess all of these yeah, things can yeah. get wrapped up together and put people in a rut. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of interesting threads to untangle from what you just said. I mean, one of the problems but it's actually, in fact, an incredible opportunity, is that this behavior is so common. Everybody does it this way. So you join a company, and either from your previous company experience or this company, you fall into that same pattern. If you said 75 slides, company history lesson, when you can break that pattern, when you can begin grossly simplifying 
your messaging, reorienting it to, towards a customer and their problem, eliminating all of this garbage of company history and awards, you can create an absolutely dramatic breakthrough in sales effectiveness. We see it all the time. So take this in different pieces. So firstly, we do get into a rut. We do follow these traditionally bad behaviors because no one's told us or ever shown us another way of doing it. And one thing we find when we teach our workshop and we consult with companies, it's, it's, I mean, it's liberating. It's almost, I don't want to say it's quite, but it's almost a religious experience for them. Like there really is another way of doing it. For example, I'm violently opposed to PowerPoint as a medium for delivering communications. It just does not work. There are much, much better ways. And I don't mean use Prezi and Keynote. They're all wrong. they, They don't lead to good communication. People instinctively understand that these terrible PowerPoint decks aren't helping, but no one's ever shown them an alternative way of doing it. So when they finally see that there is another way of doing it, they find it incredibly liberating. The really cool thing about this is it's not just more more fun and, and more energizing and exciting for the people doing the, the messaging, doing the presentations. It's infinitely more interesting and compelling and engaging and rewarding for the customer. And so what we've noticed is clients who've reoriented their sales messaging to the model we teach see these breakthrough results because the customer's are starting to see much more clearly the value that this supplier potentially brings. One thing that's interesting about us, I guess, a little unusual in some ways, is we only work with one company in any given market space. We'll never work with two companies who compete. We try and work with the market leader in each space. But the reason is there is so much differentiation to be created by good messaging. I don't want to arm both sides in a conflict. I want the guy before our guys to have a crappy PowerPoint and the guy after our clients to have a crappy PowerPoint and our guys to go in with a completely redesigned, you know, insight-driven, problem-centric discussion document and that will just stand out. So we do have these bad habits. We do follow these behaviors and patterns that have been laid down for us for 30 years, the PowerPoint generation. But when you break that, then really, really cool things can start to happen. Message managers, Tim Pollard is no messaging arms dealer. Uh, dispensing the tool <laughs> all, all sides in a conflict. And I think it'd be interesting for us to talk about dissembling a PowerPoint or Prezi world in the, the model that you guide clients in. But I, even before that, you speak about design and actually message architecture in a very foundational way so that yeah. the message that you're conveying matches our brains matches what we are craving for if we're trying to find a better way to do things. Could you start with that concept of message architecture and what do you think foundationally people need to do? Yeah. So the reason most communication fails, the problem's not PowerPoint, right? PowerPoint's just a vehicle. It's what we're doing inside that. Communication is fundamentally about the human brain. Okay. The brain is not agnostic. It's an amazing organ, but it's not agnostic in regards to how it consumes information. Our brains are wired in very particular ways with regards to information. And so your brain and mine wants and needs to consume information in a certain way. And when you align with the way the brain consumes information, then just dramatic breakthrough success is possible. But when you misalign with the way the brain consumes information, you'll never be successful. That idea leads to lots of interesting downstream thoughts. One is, The fundamental issues of communication surround architecture, not delivery. 
you can deliver a message in a very polished, funny way. You can have the eye contact of a peregrine falcon and the body language of, of Kramer from Seinfeld, <laughs> but still be totally ineffective if your message has been poorly architected. When I talked earlier about the hallmarks of bad messaging, notice that none of those had anything to do with delivery. It was about the quantity of information, how it's been structured and organized, and what is its its philosophical or, or substance orientation? Is it oriented towards a customer? Is it oriented towards the supplier? These are all questions of message architecture. Let me give you an example to bring this to life. Imagine you go to a cocktail party or, or, or imagine if I was meeting you in a bar for a drink and just so happened an old friend of mine was, was had stopped by and I said, oh, Jim, this is my, this is my buddy, uh, Phil. He's an old, old friend of mine. And you said, you know, hi, Phil. And, and he says, hi, Jim. And then you go your separate ways. Typically, what's going to happen in the next 30 seconds is you're going to forget his name, right? You've done it. We've all done it. You forget their name. Now, that's really interesting. Why would that happen? The brain is an extraordinary memory engine. Think of it this way. You can navigate from memory every major city you've ever lived in since you were a child for any, any period of time. That's unbelievable. I can navigate from memory, Washington, D.C., London, England, Mexico City, and several other cities I've just been in enough. So my mind has a series of very complex three-dimensional maps. That's how good memory is, yet you can't remember this guy's name. Now, what's going on there is it's what we have to understand is how does the brain store new information? And the brain can only store new information if it has context for it. And the problem with being introduced to somebody and just getting their name for the first time is there's no context for that information. It's what we call an intellectual orphan. And so that's just going to sort of rattle around your brain, and your brain has no mechanism for storing it. You're not being lazy, and you're not stupid, and you don't have Alzheimer's. Your brain just doesn't work that way. And so that piece of information rolls around and falls out of the brain. Now, that's all very interesting, but why would that matter to a communicator? Because whenever you stand up and put up a – forget PowerPoint, but imagine you used a PowerPoint and said, okay, here are – here are five benefits of using our product. But there's no narrative. There's no context for the five. It's not a story where the five are chapters. They're just five things. Then quite literally, all five will be forgotten by the time the next slide is up. I see this all the time. So the problem with communication stems from architectural design choices you make that cause it to misalign with the way the brain works. So what happens is there's data from McKinsey that says 55% of the content of a sales conversation is forgotten within an hour, 65% within a day, 90% within a week. So you present to somebody, and within just a few days, almost none of that has stuck, which leads to a subsequent problem, which is perhaps the most interesting problem. What's the most important word that we need to remember in communications? It's the word retellability. What I mean by that is whenever you make, let's take a sales presentation, you make a presentation, the person you meet with is not the entire decision-making body, and he or she is not going to make the decision alone, and they're not going to make the decision in that meeting. That decision will be made in a room you don't get to be in a day or a week or a month after that meeting. For messaging to work, it isn't just good enough that it works in that first meeting. What you need is for the person you met with to be able to retell the story to the decision-making group at some subsequent time. And if you actually want to think about it, all messaging works this way. If you want to get funding for a project, then that budget committee is going to make that decision. If you want to get a foundation to fund your nonprofit, 
then that committee is going to make that decision when you're not in the room. If you are just trying to cascade communication through an organization, as most executives are, communication for it to really succeed has got to be retellable. The virus has to spread in those subsequent meetings. And so the, the problem of the way we're doing it now is that it's pretty lousy even in the first meeting. They said that was that McKinsey data. So it kind of fails the first hurdle and it fails the second hurdle spectacularly. And that's why so much commercial messaging leads nowhere and companies, there are deals you should be winning and you don't win them because the virus of your message did not spread. So the key to this is message architecture. It's structuring a message that is so crisp and clean and clear and compelling and anchored in a problem and built around ideas rather than being built around data. If you can get that right, that's where the breakthrough then comes. It's interesting, Tim, going back when you gave that example about introducing me to your friend, Phil, and the whole thing that we, we tend to have problem. I certainly have problem remembering names in a lot of these settings. And it's, it's bad. You go out to speak somewhere or meet a bunch of people <laughs> and, and trying to attach those. And it occurs to me then, then people who offer tips for remembering names, it's helping you attach to something in the moment that you can bring up from memory. So you encode it a certain way. So I was, as you gave that example and message managers, I didn't even know this example was coming. So you, you said your friend Phil, and it might be someone say, well, if you want to remember Phil's name, you have to attach it to something like, oh, well, I guess Tim had his fill of me. And, and then maybe I'd be able to remember your friend's name later. The, the larger Absolutely. point is that it has to attach yeah. to something or it just goes away. And I think what you're getting at here, Tim, is if the architecture of a message is clean in this, and I'm sure we can unpack that a bit then it will more naturally attach to something in that person's world, and then they can retell it and absorb it and make sense of it. Yes. I mean, what you were just describing is a, a crucial aspect of how do you make any messaging sticky, which is this uh, is the creation of context. So what you actually just talked about is a scientific name for it is paired associate learning, which is we, we can attach something to something else and then make a memory of it. It's lovely. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I met an old lady recently, just this dear, sweet old lady, and she introduced herself. And she said, and this is so funny, she said, oh, Tim, my name is Hazel, like the nut. <laughs> I'm like, that's brilliant. She gets it. She created the context. And I, I forget most names I hear, but I will not forget that one. Now, actually, in the book, I explain how to never forget a name again. And it comes from instantaneously creating that that context. So yeah, maybe it's, uh, I had my fill of you or something like that. The broader pattern though, is you, that's just an example of a broader principle. The broader principle is if you can structure messaging to be brain aligned, that it really fits with the way the brain consumes information. There are actually six principles there. We, I'm sure not get into all of them. That's when you see a complete transformation in effectiveness. I mean, we've seen some companies, I mean, we have seen some companies who've taken what was a good 20% sales conversion rate and seen that increase to a 90% sales conversion rate merely by changing the messaging. Now, that's unusual. We typically see pretty dramatic results. That's unusual, but the reason it, it happens is that that solution is so good. The only thing in the way of the sale is that nobody could really understand what it was doing. And so sometimes the real, the only barrier between failure and success is the quality of messaging. 
And think about that. Companies spend millions of dollars on CRM systems and sales training to move that conversion rate one or two points, but it's possible to move it dramatically if you can get your messaging right, by which I mean it aligns with the brain of the customer. And those uh, memory keys that when we were talking about trying to remember names and dates and places and the like, that's a lot of work. And it's, it's predicated on that the message receiver or your customer, potential customer, is going to try to remember that. And that may not always be the case. I heard it, uh, it probably isn't usually the case. I, I heard someone once say, we should stop treating our messaging as if we're trying to help people memorize state capitals. And so I think that's getting toward this retellability key that, that you're talking about, Tim. So are there some ways, whether it's through just generally through visuals, through storytelling, what are some of the keys for people that might have just a pile of stuff, right? They got a, they got too much complexity. They have, they, they too much in their industry. They know too much. How do you begin to attack that problem with simplicity and, and organize that information in a way that people actually want to receive and can retell? Right. So that's obviously a question with a very complex answer because there's, there is no one single thing you can do, magic bullet. You can't just say, I'm, oh, I'm going to simplify it and it'll fix it. That will help. But there are actually six things you need to do simultaneously. Let's actually start with one that you, you began with, which is why would a customer even be willing to try to engage, to remember, and ultimately to retell the story? And the answer to that question is relevance. The, the story has to have commercial value to them. And the problem with most sales presentations is there's so much about the supplier and the cool thing that they do. And here's the X9000 and all the feeds and speeds. The customer has no motivation or even interest in this thing and how it works because they have no clue what business problem it is going to solve for them. So one principle of messaging is it has this principle of anchoring, which is actually drawn from deep research in cognitive psychology, is you have to anchor the conversation in a problem that the customer has. In other words, I say this to all of our clients, you know, imagine you are company X, you know, is the sales message about company X? And they all say yes, like, no, it's not. The sales message is about a customer. It's about a problem they have. And then it becomes about how company X can solve that problem. But if you want to write down the word about, who is it about? It's not about us. It's about them. So one key to stickiness, memorability, retellability is a complete, both philosophical but practical reorientation of this story to cease being about us and to start being about the customer. We actually teach, uh, it's more complex and I'll simplify it here, but just a thing we call the rule of thirds. But one part of the rule of thirds is at least the first third of any sales conversation should be about the customer and the problem without any reference to what you do. Let's just lay the problem out on the table and explore the dimensions of that problem and the way it's affecting that customer. That is a primary way that you get engagement and the customer being willing to go and retell your story later because what they're going to the, the decision group with is, hey, these guys understand this problem and they know how to solve it for us. Uh, a couple of other key things, obviously simplification. If you imagine the human brain has the processing power of the US economy, which is $17 trillion, the piece of your brain, it's called working memory, which is assigned to taking in new information and processing it, 
if the brain in total has $17 trillion of processing power, do you want to guess how much of that $17 trillion in dollars is assigned to working memory? And I won't ask you to do it, but the answer is $3. About $3 out of $17 trillion is assigned to working memory. And that's what that means is your audience in any setting, your customer is not stupid, but you are not getting nearly as much of their brain as you tend to think you do. So when you choose to firehose them, when you choose to overwhelm them, even though you do it with good motives, and this comes back to the point of we do what makes sense to us, why do we pack so much in? I want to look smart. I want to be thorough. I want to deal with every possible question in the room. I want to address the needs of all these different constituencies. There's a funny thing we're hearing more and more now, which is the one-shot problem. So, Jim, it took me six months to get this meeting. Buckle up, buttercup. You're going to get everything. So we have these good motivations, five or six that I just mentioned, that drive us to pack too much in. The problem is you've got a dump truck and you're trying to park it in a mailbox. You don't have the customer's mental bandwidth. is simply not as big as we think it is. So one of the very few truly inviolate rules of communication is you have to work within the customer's available brain or audience's brain bandwidth. So when we talk about simplification, we're talking about a much more radical level of simplification, both in quantity and complexity, to bring it down to the level that a normal human being can not just understand, but actually enjoy. It's a conversation you can enjoy instead of having to endure the Bhutan death march through the slide deck. So simplification would be one of the principles. I'll give you another one just for fun. We tend, as Western rationalists, to present a very factually robust argument, a very left brain argument. And what we tend to do is assume that our buyers, our audiences, our rational decision makers, and therefore, if I make an entirely rational argument, I'm going to get the decision I want. Well, we actually know, if you want to sit down and think of it, that that's not in any way how human beings make decisions. Human beings make decisions in their right brain. We make decisions emotionally. We come to a view and we sort of hold our breath and jump, like, oh, okay, I'm going to buy this car. I'm going to do this. We make decisions emotionally. This is very well proven with our right brain. And we then rationalize that decision by seeking out and reattaching ourselves to the data in our left brain that supports that decision. Great phrase I heard, which I absolutely agree with. Human beings are not rational decision makers. They are rationalizing decision makers. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying humans are irrational. They're not. But their rationality is based on emotion, not just on the analysis of fact and data. And what that means is you are, this is ridiculously interesting, what that means is you are going to go to a human being with a left brain argument when they are about to make the decision with their right brain. So in a sense, we're using a left brain currency in a right brain world. What you want to do is balance in any argument your engagement of both left and right brain. Now, that's where storytelling, use of allegory, visual imagery, antithesis. I could give you, you can talk about anyone you want to ask me about, but there are four or five tools that will just light up the right brain of your audience. And what you want to do is plant your big idea in multiple places in the brain, and that creates a much higher level of stickiness and retellability. And I'll prove it. If you've ever tried to memorize a poem or Shakespeare, you found that hard. If you try and remember a song, you find that easy. And the reason is 
the song exists in two different places in your brain. The lyric actually exists in the left brain and the melody exists in the right brain. That song then gives your brain two different places to go find it. And that, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but the more places I can plant an idea in your brain, the more places you can go find it. And that means something becomes more memorable and therefore more retellable. So what we teach our clients is how to create a balance of left and right brain engagement with their argument, which will significantly increase stickiness and retellability. So there are just three examples of specific practices that you apply to your message build process. And and what will arise out of that is messaging that is extraordinarily sticky. We had a client recently, very technical message. They were making a pitch to a big potential customer in Scotland. And it was meant to be, it's a true story, meant to be nine people there. And there was a snowstorm. This was last winter and six of them didn't make it. So they made the presentation just to three who were there. And they were actually quite junior. And they left and they're like, well, that was a waste of time. You know, probably we didn't do any harm, but we'll have to come back. Two weeks later, true story, the head of the European business unit gets a phone call. And it's literally a guy he's never met. And I I won't do the Scottish accent on, you know, Sean Connery, you know, Mr. McCarthy. uh, We we love the, the solution. We like where it's going. We want to pilot this. And I remember the number. It was 248,000 pounds. And, and this, the friend of mine who's, who's our client's like, who is this? And it was somebody he'd never met. And so guess what had happened? It was one of the six who hadn't been in the meeting. The three had effectively retold the story to the senior leadership so well that they had decided to make the purchase decision, even though my client, the company selling this solution, had never actually met them. If anyone listens to this no sells, you know, that just doesn't happen. It doesn't not sometimes happen. It never happens. The best you hope for is to be invited back and, and do another conversation. This happened because the retellability was so high of this message. It was able to spread without them having to come back and do a, a second meeting. And in fact, so well that the customer made a buying decision without even the supplier needing to present it again. That's what's possible when you build messaging that's really brain aligned. That's such an interesting story, Tim. And and you're right. That never happens, although it did. And it also shows, because a lot of the things with the sales teams that I'm around in a complex selling environment, there's a lot of pressure. You've got to get that meeting in the C-suite. You've got to have that economic buyer. And those are tough gets. And if you get them, you're typically having to work your way up. So you need people who can understand the value, who can retell the story, who can make a distinction between what you're offering and all the other static that they're getting from potential suppliers and vendors. And so I think that's a a really important point about if you're able to balance left and right brain and get the retelling correct, then it'll work its way in both directions with your customer, right? So a, a, yeah, a absolutely. senior level person will be able to, to, to say to maybe a more junior level person, hey, check these, these folks out because they seem to have it right. Let me know if there's anything I'm missing here. On the other hand, as in uh, the story that you just shared, it can go the other way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's an interesting associated point here, which is most messaging, particularly this blunt PowerPoint instrument and all of these feeds and speed slides. And and most of your people listening know what I'm talking about. They don't work 
period. They don't work very well, period. But you want to know where they really, really don't work is in the C-suite. There is no group in the world with less tolerance for death by PowerPoint than C-level executives. The thing you've really got to get a focus on is, is ideas. Messaging is about ideas. Ideas are sticky to the brain. Ideas are the traffic of the mind. We don't store data. We store ideas. And so what all messaging needs to become is ideas or insights driven. So I want that customer to leave the meeting with three or four big ideas having stuck in their mind. Now, that's always true. But think of it this way. The more senior your audience, the more they want and need to operate at the level of ideas. I have literally sold our messaging services to C-level execs who have not even asked a question about how it works operationally. And that's really common. C-level execs don't really care about how the sausage is made. They want to know, are you going to solve this problem that I have? And so as you think about trying to become better at messaging, messaging exists at different altitudes. The typical buying group messaging still needs to be changed in the way I'm describing it. But boy, does it need to be changed at the C-suite. The best sales message for a C-suite is a 15-minute conversation off one single piece of paper, which talks about a problem and two or three critical insights for how that problem will be solved. And the clients we work with, we will always or almost always build simultaneously a buying group message and a C-suite message. And they're different and they operate at different times in the sales cycle. And they are just structurally and even from a content standpoint different because C-level executives have different priorities to operational executives. And most companies, really, they're not very good at messaging, but they have no clue how to distinguish the, the architectural design between a buying group level and a C-suite level. I could not agree more in my experience in what senior executives are not only looking for, but they're willing to tolerate. Interesting in comparing your view because you do so much work there, but I tend to find that executives, those senior leaders are typically looking not at your capabilities, but those insights have something to do with exposure and risk. It has something to do with a blind spot that they may have, and it's something to do with competitiveness, You know, and there may be overlap there as well. So it, it really strikes into your view of how we're doing and what are some, some high-level things that I ought to be examining. Yes, and I'll give you an example. We work with a client that produces a really interesting piece of technology that helps utilities, so the power grid, be more reliable. And the operational level that you sell that into, you're talking to the guys that care about reliability. And so you're talking about outages and how many outages and how long the outages last. And that messaging is great. When you talk to the C-suite, what do they care about? They're the ones who get, I'll use polite terms, they're the ones who get their butts kicked by the regulators because consumers hate outages. Now, when you're talking to the operational buying group, you don't talk about regulatory relations because none of those guys have to talk to the regulators. That's not their job. Their job is to keep the grid running. The reliability pitch to the C-suite is about making your life easier when once a month you go in front of your regulator. So you're exactly right. What you need to do is understand how your solution impacts the priorities of a C-level executive. And they're almost always different. And as I said, most companies, honestly, they're not very good at messaging anywhere but they're just awful at the C-suite because they can't understand or they don't understand well enough 
the distinction between the priorities of an operational executive, a buying group level person, which is what we're used to selling to, and a C-suite person, which is much more about risk, growth, ROI, return on shareholder capital, regulatory affairs, relationships. You know, th- There are so many C-level priorities that are very different to buying group priorities. And most sales organizations do not have a, a nuanced enough understanding, nor can they build messaging that really ties to those. It's actually quite interesting. If you look at the C-level message and the buying group message, the one I just described, there is almost no overlapping content between them. They discuss the same problem, but they discuss it from a different perspective. And the C-suite doesn't even go into how the solution works. They don't care. They just I can just tell you, I'm going to halve your outages and you are going to have a much better relationship with your regulators. That is the C-level pitch. And it might only take five to 10 minutes. Exactly. Uh, the vision of the, their next public hearing before the Public Service Commission is going to be comfortable. <laughs> exactly. That's, That's right. a good example. Yeah, we actually had another client that was trying to, it was a utility trying to raise the rate base because they needed to make some important investments to move the grid more towards renewables. And that's actually quite an expensive thing to do to make the grid work for wind and solar. And they had gone out for several years with a very technical message. And the quote unquote man on the street just didn't understand what they were talking about. And we helped them aggressively simplify it. And we essentially boiled it to one idea. And that one idea became the heart of the campaign for the public. And in fact, that utility just got approval from the regulator for this new major new strategy of grid modernization. And so again, the C-level executive just thinks about the world differently from the buying group executive. Tim, I'd, I'd like to address another point. And you touch upon this at several points in your book, The Compelling Communicator. But I think just in terms of mindset for whether you're in sales or you're working for a cause or a not-for-profit, you know, as you said earlier, almost no one is particularly good or consistently good at messaging. And so in order to stand out, to be different, and to really grow through messaging, from my viewpoint, you just have to be consistently pretty good, and you'll be far above the crowd. And so your view on all this as well, you talk about having confidence and having a sense of ease as you're presenting your ideas, that not to put too much pressure on yourself, you know, do your homework, architect your message in the right way, and don't worry about being perfect. You won't be perfect, but if you can just be consistently good and focused on your audience, on your buyer, then you will sound and look and be seen differently than almost anyone else. Yes. I mean, it is absolutely possible. I mean, not just possible, it's more than possible. It's likely that you can become consistently outstanding as a communicator. You've just got to know how to do it. And it's not going to come from improving your eye contact and improving your body language. Those things are stupid. It's going to come from applying a systematic process to message architecture that you use each time you've got to build a message. And so you remain governed by the principles of brain alignment. We have, and I won't name who they are, we have major corporations you would know very well who use our model for designing all training. We've got dozens of companies who use it for uh, global rollout of sales messaging. We coach TED speakers using this model. We have high school teachers and college lecturers beginning to change the way they teach using this model. It applies all over the place. You can be consistently 
effective as a communicator if you apply principles of sort of brain-aligned communication design. When you said you, you sort of you sort of don't have to be good, I think what you mean by that is you don't have to be flawless at delivery. And that's absolutely right. The best speakers, I challenge you, go and think about who the best speakers are you've ever seen. They typically aren't the most polished from a delivery standpoint. They're actually the ones who just make the best mental connection with you. One of the best speakers I've ever seen is an 84-year-old Holocaust survivor, a woman called Eva Kaur. She is, without question in my mind, one of the top three communicators I've ever witnessed. She speaks for three hours seated. She has no eye contact, no body language. She breaks every known rule of communication. But she's stunningly effective because what she does, is she's built her lecture around three big ideas, the lessons she drew from a childhood life in Auschwitz. And if there's one thing or one of the things I'd really like to communicate in this conversation is if you want to be a great communicator, you don't need this mythical sort of natural talent and this eye contact and body language stuff. What you need to be able to do is structure an argument that's just going to fit beautifully in and connect to another human brain. And what's so good about that is that means it has nothing to do with natural talent. Anyone with an average IQ can learn to be an extraordinary communicator, and it has little, if anything, to do with delivery polish. If we understand that communication is actually about the application of a number of processes, which can be learned and applied, then that puts excellence within the reach of pretty much anybody who's willing to spend a little bit of time working at it. You can separate communication excellence from natural talent. And if we had more time, I could talk about dozens of the greatest communicators in the world who had no natural talent. Chief of all would be uh, Winston Churchill. Churchill had a stammer and a lisp. His early communication as a young man was brutally criticized. Uh, his speeches were lackluster, tired. I, I, there, were, there were actual documents saying how badly he communicated. He had no natural gifting. And in fact, if you listen to Churchill's speeches, almost all on audio, some on film though, you see that his delivery was was really quite mediocre, but he captivates us with language which is perfectly structured to connect with the brain, particularly his use of certain rhetorical devices. So when he says, we will fight them in the fields, we will fight them in the streets, we will fight them in the hills, he's using known rhetorical techniques there which create impact and stickiness through the specific choice of language. I'm actually, there's a second book on that, which is almost finished. That'll come out in the spring. But that the second book talks about particularly use of language and rhetoric and how that creates stickiness to the brain. And I notice uh, there is a great, wonderful, scowling image of Winston Churchill as <laughs> a symbolic of your firm, Oratium. And so uh, it follows right along in there that all of us can be compelling communicators. This is a, uh, Tim Pollard, it, it's a, a wonderful book. I look forward to your next one as well. We'll have Thank these you. links in our show notes and uh, we'll remain in touch with you and, and perhaps have you back on the podcast when your next work comes out. Lovely. Thank you, Jim. It was fun talking about this. And we get really excited about seeing people who want to be great communicators become that by applying what we teach. So I, I, I hope some of your folks go away and, and, and start trying to apply this. And I'd love to hear the stories when they do. Excellent. Tim, how can people be in touch with you and with your firm and your ideas? Well, obviously, you've talked about the book. That's obviously just on Amazon, The Compelling Communicator. And then what we do as a firm, you know, individual, co from individual coaching, mostly to up to 
you know, corporate-wide sales messaging, just our website is solid. And uh, I'm not a huge believer in or fan of social media. We do use Twitter, actually, or we're starting to use it to drip feed kind of training concepts to people who we have trained. So that is something we will be doing more of. But you can just go to aratium.com and just explore stuff there if you're interested. Thank you so much again. Tim Pollard on our podcast, thank you for your generous ideas and time from the Great Plains. And uh, we look forward to speaking again soon. Lovely. Jim, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. If you're enjoying the podcast, then make sure to join our growing list of subscribers so you don't miss an episode. And please take a short moment to rate and review. Frankly, the five stars are the only ones that matter. That helps more professionals learn about the podcast. And I'd appreciate it if you would share with any friends or colleagues that you think would get value from it as well. For more insights you can use in your business, I offer the Message Manager Memo. It's a free weekly email with practical tips. It's a short read that I believe you'll enjoy having. You can sign up at jimcarr.com. That's J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H.com. If you have ideas for the podcast or the Message Manager Memo or anything else, or if you'd like to talk about my speaking to your organization or perhaps working with your team, then you can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. Until next time, thank you, message managers. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.